Hello. Hey, we are here. What's up? This is Damon. This is Kiss. And we are Ergo, and right now we are on the line with a very, very, very special guest. We have the Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez on the line. Thank you for having me. So happy Thank to you. be Thank here. Thank you so much for, for you know, working through your schedule to make time for us. We know that this is this is an intense and chaotic moment in all of our lives. And, and I certainly understand how full your plate is right now. So uh, we, we're very grateful for, for your time and presence. Uh, so we're going to start this how we, we usually do with a two part question. Um, and obviously it, it's it's weighted right now. But in this time. Uh, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? <laughs> the last wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. It's it's been it's been wild. I I did not expect to be working through so much um, you know, before a year in office. I feel like the world is treating me pretty kindly right now. I am very fortunate that I have spent a lot of the time that I've been in Chicago organizing and I have a lot of people around me that support me, support the vision um, that we have, the political vision and the political project that we have been trying to build um, in the 33rd Ward and in the city as a whole. So I, I feel like as soon as as we knew how hard and how big this was going to be, there were people there ready. There were people ready to volunteer. There were people ready, you know, to ask questions about how to help. And I am, I'm infinitely grateful for all of those people that build movement and I'm grateful for the team that I have in my office, which is all made of incredibly committed organizers that know exactly how urgent the, the work that we have to do is. So I think I think that answers both <laughs> how I am getting treated because I have support, but also it speaks to what we are doing in order to make sure that our community is as safe as it can possibly be in this context. Um, we have been supporting a lot of the mutual aid efforts that take place in our community. And I say supporting because I feel like there is a notion that some of us aldermen are creating mutual aid from our offices. And I think it's very important to make it clear that our role as government and government officials is to make sure that the communities that are organizing for themselves are supported because they have to preserve that autonomy. We cannot co-op that work. That work belongs to the community. That work needs to be autonomous. And we are there to make sure that they have anything that they need in order to strengthen that work, right? So one example of that is people in my community, uh, Autonomous Tenant Union has been organizing um, for a very long time, but during this crisis particularly, it has been really important to have their leadership to support tenants that are at risk of being evicted. Um, we know that right now evictions have been stopped for the time being, but that doesn't mean that after those moratoriums are lifted, um, we're not going to see a lot of evictions because people owe on their rent. They might owe more than one month. They might owe more than two months. Um, so what happens with people when those moratoriums are lifted, right? And Autonomous Tenant Union has been very vocal and very active in in supporting tenants and help them, helping them organize. Um, and, and from my office, we have been supporting that work that they do. But that is their work. And that's their work that they're doing with the community. 
So I, I really hear that um, dedication and attention to like, I'm just not going to be the co-opter. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, and, and it makes sense that that's really pronounced in this moment. I would imagine that that's an approach that you've had to your work since you took office. Is that understanding of that kind of power balance there? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Because when I ran for office, um, the the mantra was that I was going to go in the office and get the institutional power and then get that cable, get that line and throw it out the door, right? So that people could have that access to that institutional power, which is something that doesn't happen often. Um so, yeah, when I took office, it was all about making sure that the community was organizing and that we were supporting those efforts and also helping make connections between the people that were organizing. And that has been a vital role, I believe, of my office to this point. Um, there was a lot of people, for example, doing work uh, around immigration, but they were not working particularly with one another, even though they all had different services that they provided and different focuses of, of work. So now we have created a table where we have different organizations working and we have been able to connect the mental health component with the activism component and look at the therapeutic value of being active. <laughs> and that's beautiful, but it hasn't been done before because people didn't necessarily have those connections, even though they were working with the same within the same community. Definitely, it has been a focus since, since we took office and it was the plan. So I feel like we're doing exactly what we said that we were going to do. That's really beautiful and inspiring to hear. Um, you and Jeanette, man, y'all really, y'all really mess my whole shit up. <laughs> y'all make me have to take institutional government so much more seriously, uh, and the and the value of it is tangible. When I, when I hear you explain it like that, and I see it happening, so there's like thirty new caveats that he's had to introduce yeah, since yeah, Puerto Rico. Can, can I say something about that actually? Because so I'm from Puerto Rico, as as, as I have said a lot of times, and, and I continue to say it as as much as I can, but um. But growing up and later as an activist in Puerto Rico, I was not into electoral politics at all because Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. And although there are some differences um, uh, depending on which party you elect from the binary that we have in Puerto Rico, it is minimal, like the differences are minimal. And uh, it was always about who was going to administer the colony. So the, the structural issues wouldn't change no matter who was in power, right? Um, so to me, electoral politics was not something that, was in, that I was into. I was an organizer, I was an activist, and I was always protesting. <laughs> and, and when I came to Chicago, it was very similar, right? Like my, my approach and my take on, on politics. Until Tim Megan said that he would run. Uh, he was a teacher in, in high, in Roseville High School. And he said he was going to run and his platform was an anti-capitalist platform. And I was like, Oh, we can do this. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's got to be something in the so, rule book somewhere. <laughs> even, I mean, even if it is for agitation purposes, we should try. But then we got so close to almost electing him. Like we were, we got to 17 votes away from a runoff with the incumbent and we didn't have money and we, none of us had ever organized an electoral campaign. We didn't know what that was, right? So we, we, we pushed and then it just seemed like something that was possible. And the thing is that it hasn't been done enough, right? So there's only a few of us right now in city council. We know that in Seattle, there is a socialist um, council woman, uh, Shama Sawant, 
But but it is it is a hard thing to do. And once you get into office, you can organize a lot within the community. But you're you're also standing against the powers that are in place that are not wanting to shift right those structures. So yeah, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> so with that, I want to look both ways, right? I'm really moved by hearing. Um, that like this model of coalition building and cooperative organizing being done from the seat of power or being not even done, but being like connected and facilitated uh, from the seat of power. Um, I, I'm curious how that coalition and that table that you said has come together. Um, how is that looking right now in this time of, you know, mutual aid and response and crisis? Has any of that like that year of that organizing that you built prepared folks to be more responsive right now or at least more collaborative uh, and then yeah. and then after that i want to talk about what's happening in city hall but 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 i would like to hear about how that that table sure. is responding in this moment well um so when i talked about about that particular table that is a, a, a very ex, an exclusive sort of project that we have been doing to work particularly with undocumented families there were several organizations that were doing work on immigrant rights and there's people doing several different things, right? So there is Albany Park Defense Network and Albany Park Defense Network um, has been working mostly with activism. So organizing people, uh, doing, providing court support. So we go to court whenever there is an immigration hearing um, and we try to bring as many people as possible. So, you know, we put a notice out. We say on Monday, we're going to be at the court at this time. And we try to bring people around and it's a mutual aid sort of approach. Like you don't have to know who is the person that is going to be in court? <laughs> you just show up because that's what we do, right? Like, I'm not going to be asking questions. Oh, what this this person like? <laughs> we we just show up. And and then the, the other part is the legal aid. Um, so Albany Park Defense Network does a lot of, of that uh, activism and organizing work. And then you have a place like Ketsi Center, for example, and they work exclusively with mental health. So one of the things that we were trying to do was bring several organizations together um, in case the raids escalated, we wanted to have a group of people that knew each other that could become a network um, to help families that were separated, right? And that is a lot of different things. How do we support people economically? How do we make sure that um, if there's a member of the family that gets deported, people will still be able to pay rent? If both parents are removed, who takes care of the children? So we need to get ready for that. Um, so there's, there, there's, there's a lot of issues that we identified and we got together to make sure that all of the different organizations that were doing immigration or immigrant rights work were working together and complement the services and each other, right? In terms of the organizing in the ward, that organizing actually started four years ago when Tim Megan ran. After we didn't get the seat, we founded 33rd Ward Working Families and we, joined United Working Families alongside CTU, SEIU Healthcare, all the IPOs um, in the city, and we started organizing with them. So now, after four years, we now have actually a coalition of organizations that in the process of um, as, as COVID-19 became like the main issue in the city and, and in, in the world, um, 
we join forces together to start creating a set of demands. And that's called Right to Recovery. And there's a lot of different organizations that are associated with it. And 33rd Ward Working Families, which is my political home at the moment, is one of the organizations that is uh, supporting those demands. So in this moment where uh, the the focus has shifted so dramatically, both in like the political process, I'd imagine right now, and also just in people's public consciousness, like it's kind of the whole world became a one issue voter about how they spend their time and their brain space right now. Obviously, the rest of the world doesn't stop. And the other things that people are encountering in their lives don't all stop just because there's a pandemic. So in your role uh, within your ward, are there things that you're seeing becoming exacerbated or and more uh, kind of crucial and critical, either as a result of the pandemic or just because the attention has been drawn away from the other very real challenges that our city faces? Absolutely. So I was giving the example before um, around rent and housing. We already yeah. had a housing crisis. Now we are really worried that after this pandemic, a lot of the people who live in this neighborhood, um, who are mostly you know Latinos and immigrants uh, from different parts of the world, are going to be displaced. Um, cause they can't pay their rent. Uh, we have seen nationally, I think that there are over 17 million people who have filed for unemployment at this point, which is an incredible crisis. And that it's is bonkers. Yeah. everywhere. So we know that people are losing their jobs and we know that after this is over, we are heading to, I mean, we're already on a recession, but this is going, this is, we don't know what this is, right? Like right. people try to talk about 2008. This is not 2008. Yeah. This yeah. is not 2008. <laughs> and um, uh, so besides housing, which is, was one of our main focuses um, when we ran, now that is looking incredibly dire, right? We are looking at undocumented people who don't have access to any federal assistance who don't have access to unemployment benefits or any of that and trying to figure out how do we create the mutual aid and the and the structures to be able to support them um, we know that the city put out these housing grants over 80,000 people apply there were wow. grants there were grants for 2,000 people so wow. so when you talk about what's available for for yeah. People, um, yeah, there's nothing actually. We have realized, and this, I mean, this is something that we knew, but it is not felt at this scale, um, often, but there's no safety net, right? Like there is nothing. There's nothing. So there are those things. Then there is the need to support older people, seniors. We have been doing phone banking to do wellness check-ins with, with older people. And we're, you know, we have a, we have a, a very healthy list of volunteers that have been doing that. Um, we worry about people that don't have necessarily access to internet or are not on social media. So we printed, um, a newsletter with all of the resources and started, uh, taking it to houses without talking to people, of course, but leaving it in the, in porches and, um, and our own building so that people had access to information. One of the things that has been critical and that we're seeing right now, before the pandemic in my ward, I was dealing with uh, a spike on shootings. Now we have seen that citywide, we are seeing a spike in shootings. And yesterday I was writing a paper for my master's uh, talking about, about these. I'm sorry, hold on, time out. <laughs> <laughs> You were 
you're doing homework. Right now. <laughs> I am doing homework, but it's so related to my to to my job too that it just feels pretty like organic and natural. And I, I'm I'm actually grateful that I get to handle this information and think hard about these things right now. While you know I'm being critical and I'm getting also assistance from like experts that talk about these issues. You, you know what? That should be a new rule of law. Everybody else in city council should have to go to school. <laughs> Go do your homework. Go read a fucking book. <laughs> you can't just sit there. I like that. And I'll tell you what. Here's what we'll do. We'll work out some loan assistance for them so that they can wow their... They can work a job. They can be on city council, be a full-time student. We'll give them some Pell Grants. We'll figure something out. I just want to see Ed Burke in the library is yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. If you want to be an incumbent, you got to go to class. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that it is important. I think that um, it is, you know, people get into, and this applies to almost any job, you know, like once you think that you know everything and you get comfortable and there's a lot of things that you definitely learn on the job, but then there are things that you just have to research, right? Like there are things that you just have to spend time trying to understand. And, and one of my main issues in the world right now was this spike in shootings. And so I was already dealing with that. But now through this process, um, so shootings were up 42% this week um, in Chicago this past week uh, compared to last year. And I was making that comparison, looking at the data and thinking, okay, so this year, the difference is that we have this pandemic. So what are the things associated with this pandemic that might be affecting those stats? And uh, of course, there's no safety net. The little safety net that we had, all of the after-school programming, all the nonprofits that were working with youth, all the violence interruption programs that were taking place, all of that is shut down. And they're, they are doing minimal work, if anything, texting people or trying to have, you know, online contact. But it is, it is, it is incredibly hard. So, of course, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing um, a complete shutdown of all of the institutions that were providing support. Um, and we're also seeing massive unemployment and massive uh, an emergency, right, in, in terms of how income has stopped flowing in a lot of households. This puts pressure in parents. It puts pressure in, like, you know, partners. And that's what you're going to see. You're going to see an explosion of violence because because people don't have uh, structures of support. So that's, that's, that's really profound because what you can deduce from that is this is evidence of the value of those structures, right? Unfortunately, the mainstream narrative would probably be like, look how crazy everybody is or look at shootings going up. It probably, you know, that value probably won't be discussed in, you know. Oh, I started reading articles about it because I, I was trying to find the data and I read probably three articles about it that were interviewing the mayor. Like it was a press conference that the mayor did and they quoted the mayor and, and then the only thing that they said about it is that the shootings were up because people were outside when they should be inside, right? Like, right. there's a stay-at-home order. You're outside, so that's why the shootings are up. And you're like, no, the shootings are up because the whole structure has collapsed. Right, right. There is nobody to ask for help. And then, you know, the city... I know that people are trying to provide those supports, but you have 80,000 people trying to get help with their rent and you have money for 2,000. So of course, of course there is like unrest and of course yeah. that's going to happen, right? So yes, last night there was a shooting 
in in our neighboring ward, but it's the same neighborhood, right? So mm. it is associated with with what has been happening around my ward, and people are scared. People are really scared. So yeah. yeah, and I think just to add kind of a third point to the triangle that you named two points of is there's also the collective mental health crisis of this moment, right? So it's both the financials falling out. Uh, the intervention programs collapsing or being having to scale back. And then there's just the reality of like both on the macro, the fear that people feel and the lack of control. And then also people losing family members. And we know which communities in the city have been hardest hit and will continue to be hardest hit. And the inability to even have the the ritual to process that, right? Um, so whether that's directly in someone's life or indirectly, it's their cousins, cousins, you know, whatever the network is, you know, this is a moment of collective grief uh, that we are completely ill-equipped societally to even begin to have that conversation for people. You know, um, before um, this got really bad in Chicago, um, I, I started thinking a lot about Puerto Rico because yeah. after after Hurricane Maria, Oof. After Hurricane Maria, uh, people started dying of a lot of different things. And all the deaths in Puerto Rico after Maria were mostly preventable. The hurricane actually didn't take a lot of life. People died after the hurricane and people died of malnourishment. People died of dehydration. People died um, of uh, bacterial infections associated with polluted water. People committed suicide because they just didn't, They lost everything, right? People died of loneliness and isolation. I, I thought a lot about that because the estimates in Puerto Rico of deaths after Hurricane Maria were over 4,000 people. And that's a lot of people. Yeah. And I was really worried about Chicago as well in that process. I mean, I'm still worried about Puerto Rico because we already know what that looks like. But when people died in Puerto Rico, the system was not ready to absorb all of those deaths, right? And uh, there was nowhere to put the corpses. Yeah. So there were wagons full of corpses that were not, and there was no personnel to do autopsies either. So one thing that happened in Puerto Rico was that a lot of people who died, their families were not able to get assistance, like funeral assistance from FEMA because there was not enough people to do autopsies. So they could not certify that they died because of the hurricane, right? Wow. You, I mean, you were talking about that trauma, right? Of not being yeah. able to have closure, not being able to have like a moment to grieve um, and be in company because right now we're all isolated. Um, and it, it just brings me to that place. And it's, you know, we could have prevented this. We knew that this was going to happen. The president knew that this was going to happen. We had a lot of time to prepare for this. And not only we could have had prepared for this for this moment, but the fact that we have had so much disinvestment and so much austerity for so long created these really weak systems that can't stand, you know, when, when something like this happens. So many of the deaths that have happened before uh, be because of this pandemic uh, were completely preventable as well. And that hurts a lot. Yeah, that, that, that leads me to want to talk a little bit more about like what governance is looking like at this time speaking like right of, like the, speaking of spineless <laughs> governmental institutions right like you know so the ball is already dropped uh but we we are always responsible no matter where we are so going into this i want to pull back a little bit one thing that i've been saying or realizing is like all the things we talk about 
are real now because they're immediate and they're collective, right? So, you know, it can sound extreme or dramatic to say that prisons and jails are death-making institutions, but right now it's real. We're able to count it. It's happening immediately, right? It's easy for us to say, but be dismissed when we say that our, like, capitalist predatory housing system is killing people. But right now it's immediate. We can see it. There's there's data to it. Um, And so we say a lot of things also about city council. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> and and you in that space, I know um, you are embodying a new representation of power. And so within that, I know there's there's been tension, conflict, pushback, opposition, uh, you know, all in good faith or in okay faith. Um, <laughs> decent faith. <laughs> all in decent faith. Um, <laughs> but, but, but now, the, the, you know, we are in this time where things are real, but we also have to like, cooperate and collaborate a little bit more no matter where our ideologies or our divergences are. So like kind of with that context of all of our political claims like coming true, unfortunately, right before our face, uh, but also we need to cooperate and like, you know, everybody is not equally, but everybody's skin is in the game right now in a way that has never happened before. How is that affecting like whatever's happening day to day of council that I guess can't even physically meet. Yeah. I was going right? to ask also based on just like, literally are y'all talking about <laughs> like, what's going on? Yeah. yeah so, so no, <laughs> that was a lot of words for, for what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a long time, we couldn't really meet. And most of what was happening, everything that was happening um, at the city council level was just executive orders. So the mayor sort of, took the wheel and she was governing through executive orders, just like the governor was also doing. Um, We are going to have our first city council meeting that is going to be virtual um, this Wednesday. And that meeting is actually only to approve the rules to have a virtual meeting. And then the actual meeting is going to be on the 22nd. It is an incredible moment also because the realization that a virtual meeting has never happened that we actually have to create these rules <laughs> to make sure that <laughs> the we same can time use them. Yeah, yeah, because we have yeah. never used the mechanism. Like the city council has never done this. So this is a completely new moment. And there's a lot of work that has to go into be, be able to comply with the law and also have, you know, the discussions. And what are the tools that we have accessible in order to be able to have discussions with 50 different aldermen <laughs> and have public comment because people need to, you know, it needs to be a democratic space and people need to be able to participate. Well, the good news is that mm-hmm. all, all 50 aldermen, they're all really, really good listeners too. So that'll be really <laughs> smooth and easy. <laughs> Very like, you know, empathetic, calm, easy to talk patient. to people, patient people. <laughs> one, thing that I, one thing that I would appreciate of this moment if council members could like speak less <laughs> sometimes we have council meetings where you have like 15 people repeating the same thing and you're like that that was already said maybe we can just like wrap up <laughs> so that happens a lot and i'm hoping that you know these meetings that are virtual are a little bit less um long i would say that in my case i I work with movement, right? So I am a part of a cohort of several aldermen that were um, elected as socialists. And we we work with, you know, the Latino caucus, we work with the progressive caucus, and we're part of those caucuses. Uh, but we also have our own, you know, discussions about what needs to happen and what we should be pushing forward. We are trying to extend 
you know, more collaboration, but it's tough. It's tough to push radical and bold ideas within city council. And that's, that's just going to be hard work that takes a lot of relationship building, a lot of, a lot of work. Do you, <laughs> do you think it'll be uh, easier or harder in a moment of chaos to do those th- to, to push those ideas? Um, I, I think it depends on, on, on which ideas there are, right? Like there are things that are going to be a little bit easier and there are things that are going to be always harder. Um, one example, so I, I imagine that you saw that uh, there was a demolition um, of this plant in a little village. Yeah. So when when the mayor took office, one of the things that she did was that she decided to take away aldermanic prerogative, uh, which means that for things like that, that usually the aldermen would um, the permits would be processed through the aldermen. So that's no, no longer a reality, right? So the city does that. So we were having that discussion, right? Like, how can we go back and be like, you you can't just do this, right? Like, you can't, <laughs> you can make these decisions in moments of crisis without having a little bit more of a process and, you know, making sure that people who are on the ground, like, environmental organizations in Little Village that were saying, please don't do this, that, that there's a, a mechanism to be able to listen to, to those people. Uh, but that didn't happen. And now we have a chaos, like it's an absolute environmental crisis in Little Village in a moment when we should be protecting the health of the people as an emergency, right? Like this yeah. is exactly the opposite that needed to happen. Um, so I think that for issues like that, we are able to get more support because I think aldermen can see how that erosion of of the power of the office that which which if you're committed to using those powers democratically, like I said before, like there's nothing wrong. Like zoning, for example, is uh, aldermanic prerogative. I decide who I give a zoning uh, change to. I have authorized that, but I have a process to do that. I have community meetings to do that. And if my community says, I don't want that, then I can't do that. Like, I, I'm not going to use my prerogative saying, well, I don't care what, what you think I'm going to give. So same thing with, with these other things, right? Um, wow. I think that their government needs to be accountable and transparent. That's something that we need to be pushing for right now in this moment because our lives depend on it, right? And I think things like that are easier to, to talk about. And then there are other things that I think are a little harder. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that leads me to um, kind of what you opened up with. This is more of like a, I actually need to learn question around housing, right? Like I don't fully understand the system. I'm just now getting to being able to articulate, wait, I don't care what law or tradition says, everyone should have a house. No one should ever be evicted. And people who don't have housing should be able to get it for free, right? Like we should have free and irrevocable housing. Let's figure out. We should the, have the, social housing. We should right, definitely right. have social housing and take away the stigma of public housing and have beautiful social housing for everybody. That's And, and where would the city play in that? Would that be CHA? Because I get confused in terms of like, where the county's power comes in, because I know they handle evictions, if I'm not mistaken, but then the, the city... sheriff does, yeah, because it goes to court, right? Like, then you would essentially be trespassing if. So that's still Tom Dart. Yeah. Wow. Yes, yes. That he would be the person that would um, come, his office would come evict people. Um, and if his office said, we're not doing this anymore, it wouldn't happen. Right, yes. Yes, which, you know, with with all of this pandemic, that's something that has happened. But but Tony Brickwinkle is the, the president of Cook County and she she's the one that manages. So 
So it would be, you know, the 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 Cook County Board and 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 Tony Perquinkle is the president of Cook County Board. In terms of expanding um housing, yes, that would be CHA. But in order to do that, we would need a huge expansion, right, in terms of of uh, public funding to do something like that. And I I mean that's what I advocate for. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think. That's what I think we should be doing, right? Like, and right now, one of the things that um, I am really trying to push right now is to counter the logic of austerity because the recession. Mm. This is going to be really, really, really bad, and you can see how people in different states, like the different elected officials, governors, are already talking about. Well, there's going to be layoffs. There's going to be this. There's going to be that. And you're like, wait, wait a second. Like big companies are going to get bailed out like they always do. Uh, banks are going to get bailed out like they always do. So why are we talking about laying off people when we need people to work so much? Like there is so many needs that need to be covered. It's not like there's no work. Like there's so many things to do. <laughs> We're in a crisis. There is so much to do. You should be paying people to do those things. Yeah. So there's no logic to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for that, we need to make sure that the federal government is investing, Right. But but we always go the opposite way. We go the way of austerity, which is what brought us to this moment and which is what will continue eroding our social fabric. And one thing that I'm really worried about, actually, is the connection between um, austerity and fascism. Every time that we go into these very austere realities and there's misery for everybody, there the scapegoating is, you know... Is, is the go-to place. And Trump plays on that constantly, right? So I am really worried that this this particular crisis is going to be used in that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a galvanizing force for whatever it gets galvanized for. Like, it's not inherently leaning one way or the other. It, it becomes about what tactics get used as a result of it. Um, in, in thinking about uh, just your time and our time and trying to move toward rapping, uh, I just have one last. Damon, you also have one one last thing. Uh, I think I'm good unless unless I hear something to follow up with. But yeah. Um. So actually, it's two things. I like. Um, <laughs> do, do it. First off, you know, as the the mechanisms of uh, city council ramp back up, um, and and even just in the position you've been in over the last month, seeing this unfold, what's something. Uh, obviously there are many things, but is there one or two things you could name that you feel like the city isn't doing that we need to be doing like hardcore day to day right now? And is there something that we have been doing that we shouldn't be doing? (laughs) Uh, One thing that I think that it hasn't been pushed enough and it's only been like a few of us pushing for it is um, to demand that Governor Prisker lifts the ban on rent control using Mm -hmm. the, the emergency powers. We believe that that can be done. Of course, it might be challenged, but you have to try, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, what do you have to seed for if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna push for the things that are the most important at this moment? And if we want to have a rent freeze, and we would also need a mortgage freeze, those are things that the governor um, would be able to do. And I don't see the city or the mayor pushing for that, right? There's only a few of us that are here like, hey, you really need to do this, but there is not an official position on it trying to pressure um, the governor in order to do that. Um, the other thing I would say is prisons. Like they, like Cook County is the biggest focus of infection right now. People are literally being given death sentences. And mm-hmm. I, 
I mean, this is criminal. So I don't think that the city is moving, like the county is moving fast enough in order to be able to solve that problem. And I think that the city hasn't put pressure. Uh, on the contrary, there was a lawsuit that was brought by um, two lawyers uh, on behalf of two imprisoned people um, who... Uh, who have previous conditions. One of them has stomach cancer and the other one has another condition. And these lawyers brought up the situation, like we are putting people at risk and they were trying to get a judge to um, to rule in favor of releasing at least people that are 65 years old and older and anybody who has like uh, a previous condition that can potentially make COVID lethal for them, right? So then we found out that the city of Chicago intervened and sent an amicus brief to ask the judge not to do that. And we were like, I'm sorry, what? what?" So we wrote a letter to the, the socialist aldermen five of us wrote a letter to the mayor and asked to take away the the motion that she sent, but they didn't. So, I mean, that's on them. Like, this is a moment where you need to step up and we need to do everything that we possibly can to ensure the safety of people and people who are incarcerated deserve to be safe. And it doesn't seem like it is an uh, urgent thing for for the city. I'm going to say one more thing. The fact that the the Chicago police is on the west side harassing black people that they are telling black people that there are curfews at 5 p.m. and they have to go home, uh, that they are asking for IDs. That is something that is completely unacceptable and should not be happening. You can't, you, I mean, you, on the name of keeping people safe, you cannot violate their civil rights. Uh, so that's something else that I would really like the city to stop, like right now. Yeah, no, and I've seen, you know, kind of anecdotal uh, and empirical accounts of that. I feel like we haven't seen even like an announcement that they're doing this or other people saying, hey, they're doing this in any kind of cohesive way. So that, yeah, obviously unacceptable. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more things that I can say. Yeah, no, I say you, that's, what the, that's what the Zoom call with the rest of these people is for. Um, and, and, and just to like, I just want to echo off that just again of like how real everything is right now, right? Like that what criminalizing does is so dehumanizing that we are seeing an executive official say they should stay there and die. It was stopping the efforts to help people. It was stopping the efforts to make a more healthy situation. And there was with intention the idea of, no, you are a danger to normal people or citizens or privileged people Mm -hmm. or the community or you know whatever um and y'all should stay there and die without care without food without water uh, effectively without hand sanitizer without mask without medical attention um that is exactly what is happening right now there's no it's one of the most immediate Mm -hmm. explicit it's it's a death sentence to the idea like the mayor for people who haven't even been sentenced Right, right. For people who have not, it would be unacceptable even if they were sentenced. This is people who have not been sentenced of anything. Yes. Listeners, if you want to hear more about that piece, one, you can listen to our conversation with Charlene from a couple days ago. Also, our next episode is with a nurse who, in addition to being a nurse in a hospital, has also been a nurse inside of Cook County Jail for the last few days. So that's just to give a little more context on that piece of of the struggle right now. Last question. 
and sorry to rush it. Uh, <laughs> can't wait to get in a studio with you and really do the like whole luxurious yeah. interview yeah. we always do. Yes, love to, to hear your story. <laughs> but the last question is a two-parter. One, uh, what do you want our listeners to know and do in this week, in this moment, in this time? And two, what's something that you've been doing uh, these days that's been helping you as a person feel okay? Um, I have been meditating, which has been very useful for me. Um, whenever I, and working out, working out and meditating are both things that keep me sane, particularly when you can't really have a lot of contact with people that ground you and people who, you know, that who you have meaningful relationships with. I think people need to meditate and work out as much as they can. But I also think that people need to make sure that in this moment when we can't necessarily be out organizing um, and and yelling on the streets, which is, you know, one of our go-to methods, that we are actively holding our elected officials accountable and demanding that they take stances on all of these issues because our lives depend on them. Like we really need a, a rent freeze. We need a moratorium on on paying uh, mortgages. We need housing. There's a lot of things that we need, and I, we need people to to demand those things. That's what that's what we're here for. We're elected so that we can serve um, the the communities, and we need we need people to make noise. That's beautiful. Is there any online place that you would want people to go to find out more about you and your work and the ways you want to be found? Um, well, yeah, people can go to um, our website, which is 33rdward.org. And you can find out everything that we are doing uh, there. To see the demands that we are articulating, people can go to righttorecovery.org, righttorecovery.org. Sometimes with my accent, I feel like people don't understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to say it like right to recovery.org. And over there, you can see all of the demands that we are putting together from a lot of different sectors. Like there's nurses, there is um, people who are advocates for seniors, there is teachers, there is, you know, everybody that, that have been able to think about what we need in every area. We have put a bunch of demands together that are crucial uh, for us at this moment. Beautiful. Before we sign off, I just want to say you're the shit. Thank you for doing what you do and being who you I are. It's just you like, so much. even in this moment, the 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 Eunice is so wonderful. So thank you for talking with us. <laughs> thank you so much for having yes. me. I, I have a lot of fun with you guys. Appreciate you. We're definitely going to have you back on once once we're outside. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Of and I'll course. talk to you. On, yes, on Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs> Okay, and we'll ball. and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back next episode, showcasing the folks on the line, reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous uh-huh. earlier, but mm-hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. Them staring directly <laughs> into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like uh, taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo explain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Mm-hmm. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. 
No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully non-committal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.